I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. My friend Duncan and I were hanging out on a river island the other night, last Wednesday, drinking a beer when the sheriff's department showed up. One sheriff's boat came up the north side current, went back down, dropped below the island, came up the south side current. Then a second rescue boat came up the river as well. He and I just sat there and watched. Everybody on the slab across from us just passed the wave train. They were huddled in groups, talking to each other, nobody swimming, nobody fishing, nobody riverboarding. Sheriff's Department rescue swimmers came up and down the south side current for about a half an hour as everyone watched, and then they pulled a body out of the river. We could see that it was a girl, but I didn't know that she was 22 years old until the next day when I read it in the paper. And every time I see a dead body, obviously I think about death, but I also think about life, think about what I'm choosing to do and what I'm choosing not to do. I always question myself in those moments. Think, am I living the right way? Death comes quick. You can be 22 years old, just hanging out at the river with your friends when you slip like this girl did. Maybe she hit her head. Maybe she wasn't a good swimmer. But she went down through the rapids one time and never came up. So when I see something like her being pulled out of the water, not a girl anymore, but a dead body, I think about the way I'm living. In this last year, it's so easy to complain about so many things. But I just was in the kitchen and I thought, what if this is the best it's going to get? I mean, going forward, what if this is the best moment and it's going to be much worse? I know it's morbid to think about it that way, but what if with climate change, what if the forest fires become much worse? What if there are new COVID variants that are deadlier? What if the Cascadia quake happens soon, 9.2, and devastates the whole Pacific Northwest? I might be finding so many things to complain about, but I'm sitting here in my kitchen making a grilled cheese sandwich with aged cheddar and fresh coffee, and I'm complaining about right now. My daughter Rue and I went rock climbing the other day with my student Sahara. And afterwards, after Sahara left, I said, Rue, do you want to go get Slurpees? Because what's better on a summer's day than rock climbing and Slurpees? So we went to 7-Eleven. As we were walking up to the door, I opened it for Rue. She went inside. And I saw that there was a man getting out of his car in the parking lot. And he was a big guy. Big and strong and heavy, 
tattooed and sunburned, and he looked really tired. And he was kind of limping a little bit. So I held the door for him. It only took about 15 seconds. But he saw me holding the door for him. And I said, how you doing, sir? And he was like, ah, I'm doing all right, but it's hot today. I said, yeah, it is pretty hot. He said, thank you for holding the door. I was like, yeah, no problem. So all three of us are inside, and Rue and I are tasting Slurpee flavors. The man gets his big gulp, goes up to the counter. And as Rue and I are putting lids on our Slurpees, he said, what are you all drinking? And I said, small Slurpees? He's like, okay. So then Rue and I went up to the counter to pay, but he was already finishing paying for us. And I said, oh, thank you. That was really nice of you. He's like, ah, I could tell y'all were good people. So we all three walked out together talking a little bit. And we got in our cars. We drove our separate ways. And I don't know anything about that man. I don't know anything about what his day of work looked like. I don't know what kind of family he had. I certainly don't know how he feels about Trump or Biden or Afghanistan or masks or vaccines. But what I do know is that we need a lot more moments like that in our country. A lot more moments where somebody holds the door for someone else and then that person buys their Slurpees. Poet Mary Oliver died in 2019. I was really sad. I knew she wasn't going to write any more poems, obviously. But the great thing about poets is that they're immortal. Their poems go on and on. And Mary Oliver's most famous poem, The Summer Day, is actually an allusion to Shakespeare's sonnet 18. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And in the end of that poem by Shakespeare, the bard writes, So long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Meaning the poem, the poem is the this, and the woman he's writing to is immortalized because 400 years later, we're still reading the poem. So not only does his writing never die, But she never dies as well. So Mary Oliver's work is still out there. And I'm going to read her most famous poem here. The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. 
I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Two years ago, our friend Sarah showed up at our house at 11 o'clock at night and she ran in kind of breathless and said, Isaac's gone. Isaac was her 14-year-old. He was going to be a freshman in high school. We said, what do you mean gone? She said, he, he like left the house. He's really upset. I don't know where he is. I said, it's okay. 14-year-olds do that sometimes. He's probably just trying to get some space, trying to blow off steam. She said, I I just need to find him. I'm really worried about him. Where is he? I said, okay, don't worry about it. So we got in her van, and we started driving around the neighborhoods trying to find Isaac. We're driving the streets for a while, and we don't see anybody. And then up on the left, in the semi-darkness, we see Isaac. His black hair, he's just walking along on the sidewalk. So we drive up to him, and she stops the car, and I hop out of the passenger side, and I start to walk across the street, and I say, Isaac, and he's in the shadows kind of ahead of me on the sidewalk, and he turns around and looks at me and just takes off running. And I was like, Isaac, and I start chasing him. And Isaac's a soccer player, and he's in good shape. He's pretty fast. So his running becomes sprinting. So then I'm sprinting after him in the darkness, 1130 at night. I'm chasing after Isaac, and he's sprinting along, and I I don't catch him. And we sprint for like two blocks, and then there's this kind of uh, nail salon slash dentist office building up on the left. And he sprints around the corner of the building, and I sprint after him. Then he sprints around the second corner, and I sprint after him. And then I'm going as hard as I can as we round the third corner into the back alley space. And he runs forward, but the alley is closed off by a big fenced gate with a 10-foot fence. And I chase him straight into that gate, and he slams into the gate and slumps down in the dark. So I stop sprinting, and I walk up on him. We're both gasping for breath in the dark in this back alley. And I say, Isaac, why would you run from me? And the kid looks up at me in the dark, and I can't really see his face. And he goes, my name's not Isaac. I was like, what? He said, My name's not Isaac. I don't know who you are. And I was like, oh, man. (laughs) I'm sorry. And I help 
some kid that I just chased in the dark to his feet. And I said, why did you run from me then? And he said, dude, a strange man got out of a van and started chasing me in the dark. And I was like, fair point. I would run too. And I kind of brush him off. I'm like, you okay? He's like, yeah, I guess. And I was like, have a nice night. Because I'm not a Democrat, and I'm certainly not a Republican, COVID-19 is a virus. It's a medical issue. It has to do with epidemiology and not politics. So while my Republican friends and my Democrat friends argue about the virus as a political tool, for me, it doesn't have anything to do with politics. I just read the scientific articles online. I make sure to read five sources and I average the data. So COVID-19 is 20 times more deadly than the seasonal flu. And it's half as deadly as the Spanish flu. This is very easy information to find. Average case fatality rates. Country by country. Just look up the science. If you're not a Democrat and if you're not a Republican... You can look at this as a black and white issue, just a medical issue. So whether it's measles or polio or smallpox or chickenpox, mumps, rubella, COVID-19, if there's a vaccine, you get the vaccine. And as a teacher, I have a vested interest in everyone getting the vaccine because the education that our young people in the world have been getting the last year and a half. It's a travesty. It's ridiculously bad. I taught on Zoom. I know how bad teaching on Zoom is. I know how bad learning on Zoom is. I've watched both my daughters take classes online. Watch my wife take classes online. I've taught classes online. It's not pretty. problem is we've politicized a virus, something medical, and it's both sides. My Democrat friends have been calling Republicans idiots lately, blah, 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 they're idiots. But I had a question the other day, I I thought, I thought if Biden didn't win, if Trump was reelected, And Trump was bragging about Operation Warp Speed, bragging about his administration getting vaccines out in under a year, in record-breaking time. And yes, I know, United States scientists were not acting alone in getting these vaccines done. There's many scientists from many countries. But if Trump had been reelected, and if he had gotten this vaccine out, and he was now bragging about the vaccine... Would there be vaccine hesitancy among Democrats? I believe 100% that there would be. I think that if Trump 
was touting this vaccine, and if all Republicans were getting vaccinated, Democrats would be hesitating. Democrats would be doubting Trump. Democrats would be doubting the vaccine. Because we've made science, medicine, and viruses into entities that are political, which is ridiculous. I was thinking about how small-minded and wrong we can all be as humans. I was thinking about this this last week as I was reading Taya Obrett's novel, Inland. And a big part of the novel is based on a true story. In the 1850s, the United States Cavalry decided to try camels as pack animals in the American West. So as part of the U.S. Cavalry, there was the U.S. Cavalry Cameliers. But because no U.S. soldiers, no cavalry soldiers knew anything about camels, they recruited Middle Eastern riders and North African riders and riders from Greece and Turkey who'd worked with camels their whole lives. So in Taya Obret's novel, there are these two cousins, and they're arguing in this scene, and I'll read it to you. Jolly looked at him and said something in Greek. Of Miko's reply caught only the bilious tone and the fact that it sent Jolly back to the wordless study of the dirt around his shoes. Miko was still looking at him, smiling mirthlessly. He leaned forward. You hear me? Shaw got up. Look here, you two. Sit, Yorgios told him. Mikos wasn't paying attention. You hear me, Haji Ali? You hear me, Haji? You hear me, Prodotis? Well, Ali jumped up. Mikos was already on his feet and halfway to him. I did get one arm between them, but blows were landing left and right. A foot caught me in the knee, and we all went down together, scrabbled around until our mouths were full of dust and our faces throbbing. Then Jolly got up to find his shoe. Miko seized his hat out of a bush. When we set off again that evening, the cousins rode in a gulf of silence. I feared the rift might be lasting. Don't worry, Orgios whispered to me. In a few days, they'll get right again. I don't understand. There are wounds of time and there are wounds of person, Misafir. Sometimes people come through their wounds, but time does not. Sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes the wounds are so grievous, there's no coming through them at all. Why not? Because man is only man. And God, in his infinite wisdom made it so that to live generally is to wound another. And he made every man blind to his own weapons and too short-living to do anything but guard jealously his own small wasted way. And thus, we go on. I haven't geeked out in a while on this podcast, so here goes. This segment is going to geek out on ants. 
This all started with me reading a poem by Sherman Alexie called Anthropomorphizing, a Fibonacci sequence poem in the ascending and descending shape of two anthill stanzas. So Alexie's poem gave me the name of E.O. Wilson, who I'd never heard of, but I found out was a biologist at Harvard University. Technically, when I looked into it, E.O. Wilson is a sociobiologist, a term he created, a scientific field he founded, and even more specifically, Wilson is a myrmecologist, which sounds like an expert on mermaids to me, but it's actually an expert on ants. But he isn't just any expert on ants. No, I I found out that E.O. Wilson is the preeminent ant expert in the entire world at 92 years old. I learned that E.O. Wilson cataloged every species of ant in his home state of Alabama while he was still a teenager. And he became a tenured faculty member at Harvard by the age of 29, which is crazy young. But more on ants. To begin, ants are complex insects, each consisting of a hard exoskeleton and three body parts, head, thorax, and abdomen. Those facts are simple, along with the concept that ants are a crucial insect for deconstruction, for the breakdown of biological matter. Ants also help pollinate, and, this is very important, they move seeds to more nutrient-rich environments. So they help with the breakdown of life and with the starting of new life. But I especially geeked out on E.O. Wilson's facts that link ants and humans, his sociobiological links. Wilson proved that ants and humans are symbiotic in nature. There is a direct link between humans and ants, and somehow they're helping each other. Ants and humans are in collusion. For example, this is weird. As the population of humans on Earth rises, so does the population of ants. And it's not simply a human and ant increase, it's perfectly alike in weight. In fact, Wilson proved that the collective weight of humans matches the collective weight of ants. So if we were to take all 7.5 billion humans on Earth and weigh them and get a number, and then we took all 10 billion billion ants on Earth and weighed those as well, those two numbers, the collective weights of each, would be the same number. One of the ways that this link is made possible is that when ants come into contact with humans in urban areas, and for some unknown reason, they supersize their colonies. Odorous house ants, for example, can create super colonies in urban buildings or houses, where a colony numbers, say, 6 million workers and 50,000 queen ants. But out in rural areas, in natural spaces, ants never create super colonies, so it's the human-ant space that allows for overpopulation. Humans and ants also have striking similarities socially, sometimes in very, very strange ways. Although human and ant brains are completely different in size, they both have complex decision-making processes and, for example, get incredibly overwhelmed when they have too many choices. So myrmecologists have proved that ants react to too many choices the way humans do, say, when online shopping. That catatonic state of overwhelmed in a human is strikingly similar 
ants and humans clicking through their choices without being able to make a single decision. Ants and humans are the only animals on Earth that have suicide bombers as well. There's an ant called a Colobopsis explodens, which is a minor worker who runs into an enemy's area and blows itself up. Human and ants both often engage in wars and other types of fighting. And when it comes to war fighting, ant species are more similar to humans than most other animals, even primates. The complexity of our societies, in fact, also shows that humans have more in common with ants than they do with chimpanzees, the closest relatives to humans. Humans and ants each have designated jobs that they tend to work and spend pretty much most of their lives doing. Ants and humans are also highly adaptive, and even if they're each destructive in their own environments, nothing can eradicate either one of them. They continue to evolve, continue to change, continue to populate and overpopulate at the expense of other species. Also, ants and humans each degradate their own kind. They travel long distances to colonize. They engage in genocide. They enslave their own kind. They used and cast away sexual partners. All of this makes humans and ants sound horrible, but... In an interview he gave in 2019, E.O. Wilson was asked to give the elevator pitch of his socio-biological theory, and this is what he said. It's the way my colleague David Sloan puts it. He says that within groups... Selfish individuals will defeat altruistic ones. However, in conflict, groups of altruistic individuals will defeat groups of selfish individuals. You know, we've heard everything we can possibly hear about the destructive and negative aspects of human nature. But there's a lot of evidence that we evolved because of qualities we consider unifying and propitious for the future. As I'm looking to the future and hoping for positive things, I think of my nieces, Mercy and Lennox, who are five years old and four years old, and the best people in the world, the most fun to hang out with. So this podcast episode is dedicated to Mercy and Lennox, even though they may never listen to it. So to finish, I'm going to quote their favorite song, which is a song about resilience. Skyscraper by Demi Lovato. Would it make you feel better to watch me while I bleed? All my windows still are broken, but I'm standing on my feet. You can take everything I have. You can break everything I am. Like I'm made of glass. Like I'm made of paper. Go on and try to tear me down. I will be rising from the ground. Like a skyscraper like a skyscraper. That's to you, Mercy and Lennox. And to everybody else listening, please recommend this podcast to somebody else and or give it a review or a five-star rating. Thank you so much for listening today to the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. And my-